don't just search for the latest fad that might work for you. Um, immerse yourself in a real deep faith, okay? And that is a, a faith that's, that's not rooted in the latest guy with a kind of a book deal and a neck tattoo, okay? But something that is rooted in the ancient church. So, you know, so read, read and learn from an Augustine or a John Chrysostom or Teresa of Avila or, you know, whoever it is, uh, find the, the big resources in the church and allow them to soak and pervade you because you will find in the long game, they will be far better than the, uh, the kind of, shall I put it, the McNuggets that you can get fed by around that are very inconvenient, very tasty, very easy to get, okay? But if you want a real solid diet, resource yourself in the wider depth of the Christian tradition. It is not often that you get to talk to a scholar who also has a fantastic sense of humor, but that's exactly what you and I have today in Mike Bird. Welcome back to the All Things All People podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Jenkins, and whether this is the first episode you listen to or not, I want to make sure that you understand that the goal of this show is really the overall goal of All Things All People which is to see generations of Christian thinkers raised up to understand and reach the world around them with the transformative message of the gospel. And today's episode is a great one because it shows that you, you don't just have to be, um, you know, sometimes what the caricature of a Christian thinker is, which is, you know, somebody shut away in a library uh, just doing really heady research that that ultimately nobody's really ever going to read because uh, our, our, our guest today, our Christian thinker for today, Mike Bird, is a world-class New Testament theologian. And as you're going to find out, has a tremendous sense of humor, has, a, has an amazing perspective on the world around him, which really leads him to be uh, a scholar and a theologian who has his hands, you know, with a grasp um, on the way things actually are, <laughs> you know, and, and if you follow him on Twitter, which, uh, his social media is in the show notes, you're going to see a guy who isn't just engaging, uh, faithfully with the biblical text or systematic theology, but really is engaging with the world and the people in the world. And so that's why I'm excited for you to get to know him through today's episode. Um, make sure to follow Mike on social media in the show notes as well as me in the show notes. One thing that's new is if you are a Facebook user, there is a uh, private Facebook group for listeners of the All Things All People podcast uh, where you get exclusive video, you get exclusive updates every month. I'm going to post and tell you who the guests for that month are with their bios um, and exclusive opportunities to ask questions of guests. So uh, go to the show notes, check that out. If you want to go on Facebook, search up All Things All People podcast and it'll come up. You can go follow me on Instagram at allthings.allpeople and the link for that group is in uh, the bio they're in but go check that out um, I'd really love to see that community grow where people can really engage with each other engage with me and the crew Josh and Ben and um, and and maybe even in future opportunities engage with some of our guests and so so yeah but today you get the the, the amazing opportunity to listen to, to Mike Bird all the way from Australia uh, tell you about how he sees the Bible how he sees theology and how he sees the world and so it's my honor to get to our Christian thinker for today 
Mike Bird. My next guest is a world-class New Testament scholar and author, having written and edited over 30 books in the fields of Septuagint, Historical Jesus, the Gospels, St. Paul, Biblical Theology, and Systematic Theology. His 2013 Evangelical Theology and the recent second edition is an attempt to develop a truly gospel-based theology that promotes the advance of the gospel and Christian life and thought. He has completely spanned, in my opinion, the range of New Testament scholarship, by both debating famous non-Christian New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman and having written a book with, New Te- uh, with a famed New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. He is an Anglican priest, a skilled researcher, an army paratrooper veteran, husband and father of four, an avid hater of coffee, and something that will please most of my American fans, a parks and recreation fan. It is my honor to have on the show today, Dr. Mike Bird. Mike, thank you so much for being on the show today, sir. Great. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Yeah, it was uh, wonderful to have you agree. And you are the first Australian that I've had on the show. And the, the time zone difference is uh, one to, to be tackled. Uh, I'm sure that you get tired of the odd hours that you do interviews to do things like this with Americans. Well, I tend to be fairly insistent that I, I don't do sort of interviews like 2 a.m. or anything like that. I can do, I, I can do morning, you know, uh, you know, mm-hmm. eight, 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 nine a.m. is usually not too bad for America or I can do my late afternoon. But you know, if, if you want to, if you want cogent, Mike, yeah. um, then we don't do interviews at 2 a.m. Yeah, <laughs> I've done it and it takes, uh, it takes quite a bit away from your, your intellect to do those types of things. So I, I understand. Um, but as the one who's usually asking, I, I, I end up being the one to give a little bit in that regard. But uh, one, one of my favorite things I found out about you in researching that I think my American fans, once again, along with Parks and Recreation, which I was glad to hear uh, that you were a fan somewhat of that, but you also enjoy confusing Americans in regards to cricket. Uh, which I, those who, fo- who follow you on Twitter saw you do that even recently. Uh, wh- why do you get so much joy out of confusing us Americans in regards to what is ultimately the second most popular sport in the world? Uh, yeah, well, it's just a game that it may sound a little bit like a baseball, but it has its own terminology, its own lexicon, its own superstars and yeah. that type of thing. So, I mean, it's something like that you can talk about and Americans will just have literally no idea what you're talking about. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a great way to put us in, in our place, certainly. Oh, there's many other ways of doing that. There's many, <laughs> many other ways of, you know, I love lecturing Americans on everything, on the lack of use of the metric system, mm-hmm. the, uh, the incorrect use of the word entree when it comes to food. Mm-hmm. Um, entree is the same as appetizer. It doesn't mean sure. your main uh-huh. Uh, all sorts of things like that. I, I love um, badgering my American friends. on. Oh, yeah. And why is the cheese orange, man? That's the other thing that really weirds me out. The orange cheese. I think I think because it's not actually cheese. I, uh, it's it's certainly not like your cheese or most of the rest of the world's cheese by any means. Yeah. Well, most cheese is kind of like a, a light yellow color. Yeah. Uh, but you put this orange dye in your cheese. So your cheese, your cheese, I mean, cheese looks like, like the color of my hair, kind of a reddy right. orange, mm-hmm. which, which I, I find very peculiar when it comes to putting cheese on a, a burger or something. In, in your travels to the States, has anyone made you an American grilled cheese sandwich? 
Uh, ooh, grilled cheese. Uh, no, I, I don't. I don't remember. I've had a lot of American cuisine. Yeah, and uh, you know, I do have my favorites. Uh, I actually like Applebee's and chilies. Although when. <laughs> People look at me and like, yeah. like that's like you know pretty on the bottom rungs sure. of the ladder. I think no, I, I like my Applebee's and chilies. Mm-hmm. I do like my Chick Fil A, mm. bit of um Papa Do's. Yeah, is pretty good as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Even even Popeyes does a very nice beans and rice. Yes, They're beans. I often go to the airport one and just get like you know three beans and rice, and they look at me like I'm a little bit weird. Yeah, but I go no, I, I really like the Popeyes beans and rice. I originally grew up in, in Wheaton, Illinois, where Wheaton College is, and now I live in the South. You would do very well in the South with that palette of American yeah. food. Chick-fil-A yeah. and Popeye's would do you quite well. Um, yeah, maybe not my waistline well, but uh, my palate, well, yeah. if you're going to spend time in America, then you need to be willing to sacrifice in the area of waistline, unfortunately. Yeah, well, yeah, well, when in, when in Rome, um, <laughs> it's, it's spaghetti. When, when, yeah. in, uh, when in the South, um, have uh, Papa Do's or Papa yeah. Cito's or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. <laughs> well, well ne- yeah, next time. Next time you're in this, which who knows the next time we'll be able to, to travel that extensively, but... Um, but yeah, so so you are currently a, a professor, uh, in, to use the American terminology, but a lecturer at, at Ridley College, and um, I mean, it, it, involved in really high-level New Testament studies. But the reason why I was so interested to have you on the show is, is you are really uh, a hybrid of sorts. Most people don't realize this if they're not involved in Christian academia. Is if you if you ask a, a biblical studies expert something in regards to theology, they might be uh, hesitant to, to delve into that and, and vice versa. If you ask a New Testament theologian something in regards to biblical studies, they might be hesitant nonetheless. You, you've not just dabbled, you've really been involved at a, at a high level in both. Um, before, before we get into the details of that, why, uh, why are you maybe so rare in the field that you've, you've written a systematic theology book, evangelical theology, but your background is in the historicity of Jesus and new Testament biblical studies. What caused you to want to, to do both? Well, there's two things you need to remember. First of all, the hyper specialization we tend to have these days is very much a recent phenomenon. I mean, the first journal dedicated to purely new Testament, uh, only really came about, I think, in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally before that, the whole topic of divinity or you know, religion or theology uh, w- was kind of built together. It's with the sort of hyper-specialization. We have like, okay, the Old Testament are over there, the New Testament over here, practical theology is over here. So I think we've artificially cut up these different sub-disciplines and siloed them away from each other, which I think is, is, is a, a bad thing. Uh, Second thing I would say is I think there is value in being a generalist. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, if you're a young scholar, you're meant to create a portfolio. So you do your PhD thesis on Luke Acts. You'll then do another subsequent monograph on Luke Acts and get published with the university press. And you do a couple of further follow-ups and, and, you know, and then you develop, you know, a a big sort of portfolio of specialization in Luke Acts, or maybe it's Mm -hmm. Paul or something. And then maybe 10 years down the track, you might alter the topics you're working on and, you know, move into Paul or, or into biblical ethics or something like that. Um, I've, I've never been in the situation where I've had to do that. I've been a little bit freer to be able to um, be a bit more eclectic in my interests. And I guess the third thing is to say is that as a lecturer in a, in a you know, medium-sized theological college, you need to be able to teach in one or more areas. So 
you've got to be able to teach New Testament or maybe ethics or maybe church history or theology. And I've fallen into the New Testament and theology as the sort of areas that, that, that I work in. And it's good because you'd like to think systematics will be based on good New Testament exegesis. And you would think that New Testament exegesis would actually have some idea of things like church history mm-hmm. or theological interpretation uh, while you're doing New Testament stuff. So I find these areas kind of complement each other. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, that's, to sum up, that's the three things. I don't believe in the hyper-compartmentalization. I think there are values in being a generalist. So you can teach and work in a number of areas. And, you know, uh, it simply helps just having a much broader perspective yeah. on, on where you are as a, as a teacher and researcher. Absolutely. I, I'm actually uh, finishing uh, a master's degree this week as, as we, as, as it turns out, because we're at the end of the semester here and, and over the last, you know, doing an undergraduate and, and then an MA, I found as a student, it's very frustrating when you're talking to a PhD, somebody who's been in the field for 20, 30 years and you ask questions and, and they won't answer it if it's not, in their dissertation or, or their, their niche. And so, uh, yeah, it's been refreshing, uh, reading your stuff and, and, you know, evaluating your career and seeing, uh, to the best of your ability. And I, and I see it in people like we, you know, the aforementioned NT Wright and, 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 and many other scholars that are coming up, DA Carson, who, who are, are crossing those boundaries. I think ultimately that's, uh, that's hugely beneficial for, for not just Christian academics, but the lay level Christian and the students who, who feel as if they can go to a Mike bird with their questions, even though it's not on, uh, you know, why Jesus claimed to be God or, or something to, to that yeah. effect. So, um, but interestingly enough, your, your, at least your initial expertise and, and how you sort of came to be known, at least in, in my neck of the woods um, was through subjects like the historicity of Jesus and, and some of these issues. Now um, I was talking to Justin Brierley a few weeks ago on the show, and we talked about how uh, the new atheism is sort of uh, beginning to become a thing of the past. And, and more and more, we're beginning to see people uh, like Bart Ehrman uh, become very popular who are um, by no means necessarily vitriolic in how they uh, antagonize Christianity, although sometimes they can be. Um, and, and you debated, as we said, Bart Ehrman in 2016 in, in a debate that um, I rewatched today in, in getting ready for, for this conversation. And, and, uh, and I've only heard positive feedback about it uh, going back to 2016. And one thing that I find interesting when we talk about Bart Ehrman and the people who we have to be prepared to respond to now um, is first of all, Ehrman is phenomenal at debates and conversations and, and these things. He's phenomenal at setting the parameters of, of conversation. But more than anything, Justin Brierley agrees, me and my friends, when we watch his debates, we agree. We just like him. He seems like a super nice guy. And we're supposed to not like the people who disagree with us, it seems. And so what was, what was your experience way back when in 2016, uh, talking about why Jesus did, in fact, claim to be God? Uh, and what did you kind of learn from that experience talking with, with Bart Ehrman? Oh, look, he's a very collegial fellow. Uh, He's also a very good communicator and debater. Mm -hmm. And the the good thing, uh, the thing that Bart does well is he he is quite a good scholar. I mean, he knows his area of textual criticism and more broadly, um, early Christianity. Mm -hmm. Uh, He also knows how to push the buttons of evangelical conservatives. He knows how to yank their chain and Mm -hmm. to get a response out of them. 
And he, he also has a little bit of entrepreneur and a little bit of showmanship mm-hmm. about him. And so when you take those three things, um, you know, a capable scholar um, knows how to um, push the buttons of evangelical and religious subculture. Yeah. And he's got a little bit of a, an entrepreneurial spirit about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, that They make a, a very good um, combination. Mm-hmm. So he, he is naturally going to be uh, a magnet. He's going to get a lot of attention. Sure. Because of that, of that, that mixture of say scholarship, um, mm-hmm. cultural awareness, and kind of you know uh, almost almost like a business acumen, you might mm-hmm. say, in being able to to promote himself, and, and he he knows the type of things he can say that will get attention. Yeah, yeah. In the in that debate in 2016, it was pretty funny to watch because he starts off the debate by asking who in the room wants to see him lose the debate. And we can't see the audience in the video, but I think it was pretty much everybody. Um, And uh, he just seemed to relish in that. And he seems like he very much enjoys being one of the few non-believers in every room he goes into. Um, But you you handled yourself beautifully. And and, and in fact, one of the things I like most about you is uh, the levity that you bring to these situations. Because I think right after that, you got up and said, who wants to see me lose? And and from what I could tell, it might have been only Bart who raised, raised his hand. Oh, there was one other guy in the audience. There was at least one other guy. Okay, sure. Well, uh, it's interesting to me, as I, as I mentioned to you pre-show, I, I live in North Carolina, and I mentioned this to Justin a few weeks ago. In, in North Carolina, uh, amongst evangelical Christians, many people somewhat uh, fear, I guess would be a good word to say, Bart Ehrman, because of the level of scholarship that he seems to put out. It seems every year, every book that he puts out. Um, but but what I appreciated watching that debate with you, honestly, is, is first of all, your, your scholarship and what you brought. But then also it seems um, that you have a genuine concern for the Bart Ehrmans. It, you're not just concerned with winning the debate, but also your witness that comes along with that. And I think being a priest and having that pastoral shepherding heart likely impacts that. Is it ever burdensome for you to, to sit across from somebody who's a non-believer? Maybe you're debating and of course, you're having to keep in mind trying to win and present the best case. But also, is it is it something in the back of your mind where I also would love to see Bart Ehrman <laughs> uh, come to know Christ? Is that is that uh, something that's going on in your mind as well? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, there's, there's a few different levels you have to answer that. Yeah, there is something a little bit um, nerve wracking or intimidating when you're being asked to be the defense attorney effectively for God or the Christian yeah. faith or the gospel. Uh, it is, it is, it's a big uh, uh, burden to wear on your shoulders mm-hmm. because what people think of Christianity or Jesus will be determined by what you say in the next 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And if you look like a goose, then you make God or Jesus look like a goose. So mm-hmm. it is, it, it is, uh, it is a pretty big burden. And that's why I always take it very seriously. But in debates like that, the most important thing to remember is don't try to win over or convert your opponent. Mm -hmm. Your opponent has already made up his or her mind. And in 45 minutes or however a few hours, I'm not going to change Bart's mind on pretty much anything. Right. Uh, But you have, and you, you, so the idea is not to win over your opponent. The idea is to win the audience. Mm -hmm. And you do that not just by knowing your stuff, but with your demeanor, the way you present yourself, uh, the way you talk about your opponent, uh, that type of a thing. There's no point in being right if you're a complete and utter jerk hat about it. Right. Um, 
if you know what I mean. And, mm. you know, and if you can be a little bit whimsical, a bit fun, uh, that's just all the better for it. I should say the interesting thing about that debate I did, there was a few other sort of um, other great speakers in the win, uh, people like Larry Hurtado, Dale Martin. If you go back and watch the debate, um, my theory is Dale Martin, who was on like Bart's team on the sort of the Christology sort of a thing, I tend to think Dale Martin is trying to convert Bart Ehrman back to a progressive form of Christianity. If you read, um, if you watch Dale's presentation, um, I don't think he was going, he was not going to convert any evangelicals to become progressive Christians, but I do wonder whether Dale, uh, God bless him, is, is trying to evangelize his longtime friend Bart Ehrman mm -hmm. to bring him back to the fold. Yeah. Um, so th that I felt that I thought was the far more interesting facet of the debate, seeing um, uh, Dale Martin, who, 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 who presented at this debate with with real deep pathos and emotion mm -hmm. uh, on his topic. Uh, I thought he was making a, a somewhat of a an appeal to Bard. So I, th yeah. I think if anyone who was trying to convert Bard, it wasn't me. It was probably the guy on his team, um, yeah. Dale Martin. Yeah. Well, and one thing that's interested me about Bart Ehrman all these years is um, he is just friendly enough to Christianity to where evangelicals might actually listen to him. And he's always very seemingly fair uh, to say what claims he isn't making, which is he's not necessarily trying to persuade you and I from worshiping Jesus. He's just trying to, in his mind, influence our historicity therein. But it seems as if, yeah, a progressive Christian might say, Bart, you're maybe you're this close. Maybe maybe we can get you back. And uh, and I think yeah. even even in, in evangelical theology, I think you uh, am I correct in saying I think you reference some of Dale Martin's work, don't you? I do mention um, some of his stuff. Dale uh, Dale is a, um, uh, a a gay New Testament scholar, mm -hmm. very good scholar. Um, he adopts what he would call an LGBT queer yeah. Marxist. Um, yeah. post-colonial interpretation he's done a, a very good little book um called uh biblical truths which is mm -hmm. kind of like a post-modern new testament theology uh it, it is it, it is quite a, a good read in many respects there, there are some parts of it i read that i just kind of like roll my eyes and mm -hmm. go well this is just you know, progressive christianity stuff but in many places i he's, he's quite insightful mm -hmm. Uh, and he comes up so it, it, it was a book that i incorporated into the second edition of evangelical theology because I thought Dale Martin had some real good insights there. Mm -hmm. uh, some things that were ripe for criticism, but some things that, that I, I found real wisdom in what, in what he could say on some things. And I was able to utilize in my own discourse. Yeah. Uh, one thing I find so interesting about that debate, and it really speaks to, to you as a scholar um, in, in answering some of Ehrman's qualms about the gospel of Mark, which is uh, essentially maybe the greatest thesis statement in regards to his scholarship is uh, you talk about how of all the the people, so to speak, that might have known who Jesus actually was, you say that one of the first to show themselves were the demons who call out and they say, we know who you are in regards to Jesus. And when I heard you, when I heard you say that, that, hey, the demons say that Jesus is not just an earthly Messiah, he's something more. Uh, it made me remember that even though you're a world-class scholar, um, I'm sure you can remember those early days studying the Bible when you might have noticed something like that, or it just jumps off the page where you say, oh my goodness, even, oh wow, the demons, what does that mean? Um, are, do you still have, uh, do you still have memories of those early days studying the Bible before you knew Greek, before you understood Pesher and all these other things where 
the the words of scripture seem to just jump out at you. Does that does that still float around in your mind as you read the scriptures today? Uh, for, for me, that's not days of a bygone. You know, this is like this is like my yeah. day. Um, yeah. Every now and again, you know, or things just you just put two things side by side and you see new connections. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, one of the benefits of of my own career being a professional scribe, yeah. uh, as it were is you, you get to have these insights your own, or you sit around people who are having their own insights mm-hmm. and you, you get to learn from them. I mean, let me give a, uh, it's probably the, the number one thing I, I learned when I read my, when I wrote the New Testament intro with Tom Wright, mm-hmm. there's a passage in one Thessalonians where Paul is talking about sexual ethics. And he says, you know, d- don't become a place where you can ever exploit one another. Mm-hmm. And I think he's saying there that don't become an environment where, you know, uh, people can be sexually exploitive of other Christians. So this is particularly prominent if you've got a church that includes um, slave owners and slaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if you then apply that to the type of Me Too era, or dare I say mm-hmm. the Church Too era, yeah. it's very important. Don't allow your churches to become safe space for predators. Mm-hmm. And you need to be very vigilant that any type of exploitation or any type of uh, perversion of, of, of power can mm-hmm. ever take place. So things like that, you know, you, you make connections out. Or another thing I learned from Philippians is that Paul talks a lot about the theme of giving up uh, his own privilege. I mean, he talks about Christ yeah. who gave up the privilege of heaven. Paul says, I've renounced my own inherited privileges. And then he talks to the, uh, I think he, he wants the, the Philippians to kind of maybe forsake some of their own um, cultural privileges connected to, you know, uh, Roman citizenship and that type of thing. And then that leads on to what type of privileges do we have to be give, giving up? You know, Christians mm. have enjoyed a very culturally privileged place, but that sometimes comes at the expense of embracing a civil religion, Yeah, you know? Uh, you know, you can have your Jesus as long as it's fully embedded within the imperium of uh, America or Australia or Hungary or Poland or, you know, wherever you are. Mm-hmm. And we've got to make, we've got to give up those privileges when our country, when our faith is being embedded with ethno-national agendas or, or mm-hmm. anything that's rather uh, tawdry or whatever, you know, progressive versions you might have of the same right. thing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so I'm constantly learning things about the New Testament, and there's no point where like, aha, well, you know, now I know it all. Right. Uh, everything yeah. is a journey of learning. Yeah. And I think what's so interesting when I think about uh, people who are at your level of scholarship and, and who are putting out the, the prolific amount, like we said, uh, somewhere around 30 edited and, and, and authored texts. Um, but one thing I, I really appreciate about you is you are a priest, you are, you are a pastor, and you, you've said before that you see yourself as someone to bridge the church and academia. And um, in my opinion, you do it quite well. And, but, but what I'd love to hear from you too is, you know, most people aren't Mike Bird. Most people aren't D.A. Carson. They're not Bart Ehrman. They're, they're not, they don't have a high level of education and they're not, they're not called to that. So um, their operative belief, if we could call that, is, is likely formed not just by scholarship but, and sound teaching, but instead what they believe or what they, what they feel is compelling. So in regards to Christology, we'll say, um, you talking with Bart Ehrman who says, no, Jesus never said he was God. And you say, uh, no, he, he very much did. Um, what do you believe? What do you think the, the average Christian's view of Jesus really is? Um, 
and I know that that's difficult because you, you have a broad stream of mainline yeah. evangelical and so on, but maybe even just in evangelical tradition right now, in, in your opinion, if, if, we, if we had a blind poll of most evangelical Christians, yeah. what would they really say about Jesus? Yeah, I mean, the, most evangelical Christians, and this is you know very general, I know, sure, of course, would probably see Jesus very conscious of his own divinity, mm-hmm. but to the point of almost absurdity, as if Jesus was yeah. walking around Galilee, you know, remembering the times when he was playing volleyball with the angels, and you know, he can't yeah. wait to take off this horrible, dirty monkey suit and go back to turn into Casper the Friendly Ghost and float around the Father's mm-hmm. side and something like that. Um, so yeah, I, I found the evangelicals are very comfortable talking about Jesus's divinity because that they think of him almost as like a Marvel superhero. Right. Uh, probably the area they struggle the most with is, is, is with his genuine humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you imagine Jesus, uh, in Gethsemane filled, filled with fear and doubt? Okay. Yeah. Uh, can you, uh, imagine Jesus on the cross feeling betrayed and abandoned? Mm-hmm. Um, not feeling the victory, but feeling abandoned, betrayed, and that God the Father has turned away from him. Uh, that's the, probably the area where evangelicals, I think, struggle with more mm-hmm. uh, than anything. And that's why I like getting my students to listen to the song from Jesus Christ Superstar, Gethsemane, mm-hmm. which I think, although it's fictionalized and it's uh, you know, a very 1960s-esque yeah. account, it does portray the raw vulnerability of Jesus's humanity in the garden of Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. What, what value then do you think? Cause, cause I agree with you that um, modern day evangelicals in, in Western Christianity certainly do overlook an aspect of Jesus's humanity. What, what then is the greatest benefit uh, in our understanding of the gospel? If we have a more thorough understanding of, of that aspect of Jesus's identity. I think there's a a number of things that you're going to get. Uh, First of all, you get a better sense of of what you find in the Hebrews that he is one of us. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. He is one of us. He's not this heavenly superhero who merely appears human. Mm -hmm. It's not an epiphany of a God in human form. It is God who took on human flesh. Egeneto Mm -hmm. Sarks became Mm -hmm. flesh. And this is, this is very important. He is one of us flesh to our flesh bone to our bone not just a superhero uh for our benefits so that's the first thing uh I, I think you get a second thing that really freaks people out is when i tell them when jesus rose from the dead when he ascended into heaven he took his humanity with him mm-hmm. okay so he doesn't he doesn't so he's got a, res- a resurrected body a glorified body but it's still a physical right. human body okay he takes that to heaven so there is there is, there is now a human being at the helm of the universe, okay, mm-hmm. as the father's vice regent. And, you know, that, that, that's very important. And I, I also ought to say, if you don't like people from the Middle East with olive-colored skin, yeah. then you really need to find a new religion mm-hmm. because we're currently worshiping the Lord Jesus who with his, you know, resurrected, you know, Galilean body has ascended mm-hmm. to the heavens and shall be so for all time. Uh, the third thing I like to point out is a, a bigger issue of biblical theology. God's plan always was to have human beings as priests and kings of creation. That, that's given to Adam in the garden. It's rehearsed in the role of Israel and Canaan. It's kind of um, telescoped down on the Messiah, and it's epitomized in Christ, who is the human being. 
mm-hmm. who is at the right hand of the Father. And we, in the new creation, will be ruling with Christ over the new creation. So God's purpose is for human beings to rule and reign over his creation. Mm-hmm. So the kind of partnership or, or a dual regency between God and humanity over his his world is the way it was always designed and intended. And that purpose is going to work itself out fully mm-hmm. and finally at the consummation of all things. So humanity, our physical humanity is going to be there. Yeah. And it's so interesting to hear you, you describe that because I do think the, the, the Christian who hasn't been privileged with years of, of, of academic study um, can still uh, grasp what you just said and allow it to become part of the soil of which their faith, their faith grows out of. Um, I hear a lot of Karl Barth and everything you just said. Um, I don't know if you've been influenced by, by Karl Barth, but um, you know, he wrote the humanity of God and, and it's so inter- It was so interesting because when I saw that your second edition had come out and I saw the title evangelical theology, um, you know, he had a very famous book called Evangelical Theology. Was that was that somewhat daunting for you to title uh, your your textbook, your uh, your systematic theology, the same thing as one of Karl Barth's most influential books? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I, I wasn't so much daunted by the Barthian sure. aspect. You know, I, I do like a little bit of the Bart man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, particularly the way he kind of um, moves the Trinity front and center of his doctrine of, of revelation. Right. Um, and the several, several other very good insights of Bart ranging from, you know, election to all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. For me, the, the biggest problem with using the evangelical word is that the evangelical word is just so nebulous. Yeah. It means it's so broad as to be practically meaningless. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in, in its worst sense, it can take on certain connotations of American civil religion. Yeah. In its best sense, it captures the idea of the, uh, the Protestant recovery of the apostolic gospel, the evangel. Mm-hmm. And uh, evangelical these days really does need some um, adjectives. I mean, yeah. it's ironic because evangelical itself should be an a- adjective in evangelical right. church or ministry. So you now need adjectives for the adjectives mm-hmm. uh, as it goes. And you know, you, the alternative is just abandon the word because it's so right. nebulous. It's just mm-hmm. pulled in different directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you have to you have to define it further. So the, the big, biggest problem is not the connotations with Bard. It's that mm-hmm. the word evangelical can be a byword or a tribal word or yeah. a meaningless description. Yeah. Has that, I, I mean, I hate that I don't know this, but unfortunately I, I, I'm not too keen on, on the Australian cultural movements at the moment. Has, has, has evangelical made its way even to Australia as, as a word that has American connotations now? Uh, it does now. It certainly does mm. now because of the media. I mean, like we, we get CNN and MSBC. Course, yeah. we, we get all that. And you can see Rachel Maddow kind of, you know, hating on all the evangelicals supporting right. Trump. And then people just absor- absorb the same thing and, yeah. and think evangelicals are all A or all B or all C, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we also have our own history and heritage uh, with Christianity in Australia. And that, and that kind of ebbs and flows. Right. A bit there's kind of high points and low points the billy graham crusades in 1959 was a very big high point in australia's religious history mm-hmm. um i think like a quarter of the city of sydney went out to you know hear mm. um billy graham over the period of a week or something so it, it was mm. quite a big event and similarly very big down here in melbourne as well uh so there's always been a really um love-hate relationship between evangelicals and mainstream american culture australian australian culture mm-hmm. sure Sure. I think you do a, a terrific job in the book 
um, evangelical theology to to address that problem um, because it certainly is is one here, uh, and and I would even say that um, many Christians are abandoning the word just simply so that they don't have to uh, defend a policy or, or politic that they don't they don't necessarily endorse, or maybe even that they do, they just don't see as associated with their their faith. But in the book, you you draw this distinction and compare what you call mere evangelicalism with C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity. Um, and for, for people listening who might, who maybe even the word evangelical is something that they're familiar with, but, but they don't, they don't know what it believes, what it means, because like you said, it means so many different things. When you say mere evangelicalism in the book, what, what do you mean by that? And what's the picture that you paint? Well, the picture I paint is, first of all, you've got as a base plate the uh, ancient faith, you know, the, the, the creedal faith, things like the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedon Statement. So you've got that basic um, Catholic Christianity in its, in its uh, broader sense. But then you add to that the Protestant re- return or the Protestant attempt to recover the apostolic gospel that was somewhat mired or compromised by uh, medieval Christianity. Uh, you've got that. And then with the added mixture of the promotion of the gospel and Christian mission for the purpose of the spiritual renewal of the churches by a fresh encounter with God through the gospel. Mm-hmm. So that, that when I talk about mere evangelicalism, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a particular denomination or a mm-hmm. particular theological ethos. Uh, evangelicalism is kind of like the big tent where you can get um, Calvinists and Methodists, Mm -hmm. um, Anabaptists or Anglicans have got enough in common that they can come and uh, play, hang out, Mm -hmm. or even minister and work together in some of those common spaces that we have. Yeah. I, I read you, I read your analogy of it being a tent and I thought that was beautiful because in what I do with all things, all people, I continually come up against, I know you're a Calvinist, so don't take this the, the wrong way by any means, but uh, you know, you, you continually come up against maybe a Calvinist who says that uh, I, I read somewhere that when you were in seminary, you had a sign on your door that said Pelagians not, not welcome. Um, and, uh, well, you Pelagians, know, it, Arminians or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. But I mean, obviously that was, you know, we're, we're in jest, but there are, there is infighting amongst Anglicans to Calvinists, Calvinists to Anabaptists and so on. Um, but you, you drew this picture of this big tent in the book mm-hmm. and, and elsewhere, uh, I read you discussing, uh, N.T. Wright's New Testament or new, t- new Perspective on Paul, which uh, is, of course, too large of a subject for you and I to, to parse through here. But in discussing the impact of it, I think you, you, you did a, a great job explaining why justification, why this idea of mere Christianity, as C.S. Lewis said, and mere evangelicalism, as you said, uh, is so important because you said in the topic of justification Justification by faith means fellowship by faith. It means multicultural churches should be the norm. It means nobody gets asked to sit at the back of the bus. It means that racism and ethnic prejudice has no place in our churches. It means in Christ, there is not Jew nor Gentiles nor African American nor Hispanic American, neither Arab nor Israelis, but all one in Christ Jesus, because that which unites us is infinitely more powerful than anything that might divide us. And I don't know about your perspective. Obviously you and I live on different sides of the globe in my lifetime. I've never lived through a time where it's more difficult for Christians to live out 
what you just said. And so yeah. for, for the listener who is not a scholar or an academic or a podcast host or what have you, um, how can they better understand, in your opinion, how to exist in that large tent of evangelicalism with people who certainly disagree with them while also being able to discern what beliefs might uh, need to be outside of that tent? You know, we're in a constant yeah. world of discerning and not that yeah. we're not, not that you and I are trying to separate who's real Christians and who's not. But but how, how do you recommend to your students at Ridley and to Americans and Australians alike that say it, it seems like we spend an awful lot of time fighting other Christians and yep. uh, right now, obviously, we just can't afford to do that anymore. Yeah, and I think that's right. Um, you've got to accept the fact that you can make common cause with people who might be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can be in anything. You can be in parachurch ministries, like ministries at a university. Um, it could be, you know, things about, you know, overseas aid. There's numerous areas where Christians relief and where some of the differences between them don't really matter all that much or, that, or there's no need for them to play out. Mm-hmm. And Christians generally have enough things in common um, most of the time to, to make that sort of work uh, possible, uh, if you like. Uh, like, I mean, there's several things I could talk about, you know, uh, you know, ranging from justification to do we find ourselves as, as a, like a boundary set Mm-hmm. And or everything's all the propositions you've got to assent to, or do we think of Christianity as more of a praxis and way of life? Uh, there's all sorts of mm-hmm. d- different issues. But you know, John Wesley, I think, put it well. He said, you know, if your heart's the same as my heart, mm-hmm. then you can hold my hand. Mm-hmm. Where you see signs of spiritual uh, life, where you both confess the same Lord, where you've both got the same basic understanding of the gospel, uh, I, I think you can you, you can work out and, and you can you can mm. spend time together and, and learn from each other. Now, some people will say to me that, well, that's not possible. You you can't get Calvinists and right. Wesleyans or Arminians mm. agreeing. I mean, this is this is beyond the pale. It's just mm-hmm. it's not possible. They're they they're two diametrically opposed systems. To which I say poppycock. <laughs> um, um, you know, uh, J.I. Packer, who was a Calvinist, and Thomas Oden, who was a Methodist, mm-hmm. collaborated and wrote a book called One Faith. Right. where they go through various evangelical statements of faith and point out other things that evangelicals generally agree on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that idea of that, you know, these Calvinists and these Arminians and these Anabaptists you know, can't possibly spend time together because mm-hmm. it's more mutually exclusive. And uh, no, it's not true. There's, there's far more agreements than disagreements. And in, in fact, in the, in the wider scheme of things, the, the disagreements can be very insignificant. Sure. Uh, you know, whether you're being chased by um, the caliphate or communists in Cuba, uh, they don't care whether you're credo or pedo-baptism. Trust yeah. me, the, the caliphate and communists don't care if you're uh, credo yeah. or, or pedo-baptism. Um, yeah. And you've, you've probably got a vested interest in helping each other out mm-hmm. uh, in, in parts of the world in particular that are very adversarial for Christians. Certainly. And I would even say living in what might be the friendliest place in the world for Christians, that it's growing more imperative that the Anglicans who, you know, might believe that women can be pastors need to, the, the, the Southern Baptists need to be able to, as, as you said, Wesley said, hold, hold each other's hands. We're growing up in a world now where we really can't afford to expend energy in constantly fighting each other even though of course our differences might be sometimes legitimate um but uh but yeah but the expenditure of energy is what in the in the hatred therein is what concerns me sometimes um it seems like it it seems like what what good is our witness anymore when when outsiders look at us and all they see is 
why why you and I don't disagree. Um, yeah. So but. that's 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 exactly right, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the best ways that I think uh, you demonstrate a lot of these principles is is very unlikely, in my opinion. I've read in my years many textbooks, many theological treaties, and yours your book is the only one I've ever seen with jokes in it. Um, so can you tell me that that I posted one on I don't it was in my Instagram or Facebook, and it was the one about the the Calvinist who went to heaven oh, and, yeah. and the two different lines. And uh, I think it's on my Instagram for anybody listening to go, to go read it. But uh, it, people loved it. And it was, it was, it was a breath of fresh air for my followers to see, Oh, here's a very serious theologian who in fact is not very serious. So what was the genesis of including these little funny anecdotes in a book that otherwise might not have had a humorous bone in it? Uh, yeah. My thing is I kind of like write the way I speak. Mm-hmm. And as any of my students would tell you, I'm primarily a comedian and mm-hmm. biblical studies is just my medium. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you, if you can yeah, accept that. Uh, yeah. Like I, I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good with, yeah. um, with a joke and a sense of humor. I just, I don't know. Some the problem is some people find it juvenile and grossly inappropriate <laughs> to combine theology with humor. Yeah. It's like, you know, how can you make jokes about those sorts of things? Other people find it refreshing and it gets away from the more austere mm-hmm. and um, intense seriousness of yeah. um, a lot of theological discourse. And you know, if, if you can't have a joke and have fun along the way, mm-hmm. uh, then it's probably not worth doing for my yeah. mind. So in this volume, Evangelical Theology, I've done several things. You know, I had the odd joke through here and there uh, about Calvinists or Arminians or or any, any number of things. But I've also got a few other more, um, shall we say, outside-the-box things where I try yeah. to describe the Council of Nicaea as a type of rap battle mm-hmm. um, between um, Eusebius of Nicomedia and uh, Bishop um, Alexander of Alexandria. And, um, you know, imagine a, a couple of guys, you know, like, you know, talking some smack about each other mm-hmm. uh, and a bit of theology and, and seeing, and I, I found it very entertaining and engaging that maybe the yeah. book reviewers will disagree, uh, but we'll have to see what happens. I, I enjoyed it. I, obviously I I've not reviewed the book or anything, but it, it, for what it's worth, I enjoyed it. And like I said, I've, I've read quite a few of of the, of those types of books and, and yours was unlike anything I'd ever, I'd, I'd ever read. Um, I'm having Andreas Kostenberger on the show in a few weeks. Who's obviously a, a well-known Johannine scholar. I, I don't think I've ever read any jokes in any of his, in any of his books, but he is Austrian, Jeremy. So <laughs> that's yes. quite different than Australian. Yes. It's, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, no, Austrians aren't, Austrians are not known for their um, sense of humor. Uh, Maybe, maybe you could have jokes about Wiener Schnitzel or something. (laughs) And yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to work. Andreas is a lovely man. He's a lovely Christian man. Uh, Very capable scholar too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I I would not expect too many hijinks from Andreas. But maybe... When he is done, because I think he is currently serving as the editor for the journal for Evangelical Theology, uh, Theological yep. Society. Whenever he's done, maybe we have a candidate to take his place because you are an ETS member, I believe. Uh, yes, yes. I sort of go up and down on my ETS membership. It's, <laughs> it's very much like an on again, off again sort of um, um, uh, relationship. Yeah. Um, 
But I know there's some wonderful people in ETS. Yeah. They've got a great mission. They do some good stuff. There's a few elements of the society that yeah. do kind of frustrate me uh, mm-hmm. a bit. I mean, if I can tell a joke, to be perfectly honest, you'll probably find more women in a gay bar um, <laughs> than you will find at the average ETS thing. I mean, you're um, not which, wrong. That's true. And to be fair, the, the, the ETS people are aware of that and they have yeah. taken some steps to try and rectify that. Yeah. Uh, but... I think having a female president uh, at some mm. point would be the best way to rectify that. It but would... For some strange reason, it doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah. And no one seems to be in a great uh, desire. So yeah. again, uh, I, I love the society, but there are, there are, there are some days where I love being there and there's some days saying, yeah, this does feel a little bit weird. Well, whenever you want to take a crack at, at that editor sh- uh, position, uh, not that my, suggestion or nominate because i'm an i am a member but uh not that my recommendation has any bearing at all um but i will i'll i'll do whatever i can to get you at least an opportunity because i would love to see that if the little white book came in my mail with your name on it that would probably add a different different flair to the to the articles therein well thank thank you for the vote of confidence jeremy but i'm sure there are far more worthy yeah, candidates sure. within nts you could take over and do a very good job sure of course of course but uh none with none with jokes um so but on, on the other side of it and and we'll 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 go back to more of serious serious tone here as best as possible but um one of the other things that i think is phenomenal about your attitude towards scholarship is you don't just simply throw out when you, you know it had to have been somewhat um uh, we'll, we'll use the word daunting yet again uh, to do a systematic theology book. I've heard you talk about that. There's plenty of systematic theology books out there. Um, and yet here, you know, here you are having written the second edition, edition to one. And, and for those listening uh, who, who might not be familiar, systematic theology is essentially when you try and encapsulate all of theology in these very nice and clean uh, divided chapters that, that place uh, the whole of Christian belief into various topics such as pneumatology and homardiology and, you know, the study of the spirit, the study of sin. And, and so one of the things that I really, other than the jokes, other, one of the things I love best about yours is um, you, you don't just look at it as, as this theoretical and pragmatic function that theology sometimes can take on. Um, but you, you really let it be a very honest look at some of the realities that modern theologians, biblical scholars, pastors, and, and, Christians in general are facing and, and, and you let it speak to the state of the modern church and talking specifically about the evangelical need to retrieve ancient voices of Catholic and reformed traditions. You said this, this really just jumped out at me and, and you said this must be done if we are to avoid rabid pragma, um, pragmatism, escape megachurch pastor cultism, thwart theological anarchy, stop repeating the errors of the past, evade the odious errors of civil religion and avoid the moral therapeutic deism that characterizes so much of Western Christianity. Um, and so, so Mike, as a, as a priest, as a scholar, uh, this is, I mean, this is to me as honest of a passage in a systematic theology book as I've ever seen uh, mm. that, that really we need, we can't just look at these things as theoretical. We can't just look at these things as things that float around in our mind and are recreational for undergraduate students to talk about in their dorms or for discussions at an ETS meeting, but in fact really come down to the, the, the grit of what it really means to be a Christian. And so how can the church and all of her parts better face a world 
whose culture is antithetical to the church while also contending against what you've laid out here in this passage, which seems to be a church that sometimes is fighting against itself from within with things like you said, mega church pastor cultism, which as a, as an American evangelical is constantly uh, something on my radar. You said rabid pragmatism, the, the, the belief of just saying, make everything as practical and, and I could go on. So, so when you wrote that passage and passages like it in the book, um, as a lecturer, as a, as a pastor, how are you leading your students and people personally to, to be theologians, to be well-read Christian and Christian thinkers, but, but also not let it just be all theoretical? Yeah. It's what I would call the painful grind for authentic faith. Mm-hmm. And that is don't focus on the latest fad. Mm-hmm. Uh, or whatever it is, um, or the latest superstar, you know, uh, like when I went through seminary, we were all told to be the next, you know, Rick Warren. Yeah. Also the, no, Bill Hybels. And then it was to be the next Rick Warren. Now everyone wants to be the next Tim Keller. Mm -hmm. And those three individuals, um, probably notwithstanding Bill Hybels for, um, reasons we shall not Not mention, um, have, have some elements of things you want to imitate that were very good, certainly in their time. Like, you know, Rick Warren back in the nineties and, and you know, more recently, Tim Keller. But don't just search for the latest fad that might work for you. Um, immerse yourself in a real deep faith, okay? And that is a, a faith that's, that's not rooted in the latest guy with a kind of a book deal and a neck tattoo, okay? Mm-hmm. But something that is rooted in the ancient church. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so read, read and learn from an Augustine or a John mm-hmm. Chrysostom. Mm. or Teresa Ravilla or, you know, whoever it is, yeah. uh, find the, the big resources in the church and allow them to soak and pervade you because you will find in the long game, they will be far better than the, uh, the kind of, shall I put it, the McNuggets that you can get fed by around that are very inconvenient, very tasty, very easy to get. Okay. Mm-hmm. But if you want a real solid diet, resource yourself in the wider depth of the Christian tradition, which will also ensure you don't get snookered or sucked in by um, so, some guy who's kind of got a really good YouTube ca- channel and a mm-hmm. kind of a way with words, whether mm-hmm. it's kind of doing like a frat boy who knows how to preach or something that's dragging the church to the political right or the far mm-hmm. political left. If you're far more grounded in the great Christian tradition, you're going to be inoculated and immune from some of the worst aspects of cultural Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it, it certainly is. Um, obviously I don't make light of this word considering the circumstances we're in worldwide, but it certainly is a, even a pandemic right now in the modern church that, that we are, uh, infatuated with whoever seems to be the best communicator and whatever strategy seems to be working the best uh, is most efficacious. And, and so um, I, I, do, I do very much appreciate that encouragement. When I read it in the book, I thought, well, goodness gracious, we all, we all need to have this in our minds, especially um, in the Western church. And so, um, so Mike, I, I, I'm so appreciative of, of the time you've been willing to give me today. I, I pray that people, when they hear uh, your lightheartedness, but the the healthy mixture it has with um, serious scholarship, and as and as you've said about yourself, um, someone who is both an exegete and a theologian, um, I think that that combination is uh, certainly something that's only going to continue to grow the kingdom uh, all over the world, but um, but in Australia and 
in wherever your, your work may go. And so thank you so much for, for being a part of this today. And I hope that you sell more and more books and, and get more and more popular, not for, for your sake, but for all of ours. Okay, well, that'd be lovely. Maybe we could do like, a, as Paul says in the opening Romans, maybe we could mutually encourage one another. Of course, um, yeah. You, uh, you, you buy my books and yeah. uh, I'll be on your podcast and, and we'll Anytime. be mutually encouraged by this exchange. Yeah, we, I, I'm, that's, I, that's all this is really, Mike. Is, is, it's, a, it's a mutual encouragement of sorts. So. No, I, 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 I appreciate it. But, uh, but yeah, you, you are, you're doing tremendous work and, and I very much thank you for being on the show today, sir. Well, Jeremy, thank you very much for having me and thank you to all your listeners for listening.